0: Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast featuring emergent and established artists, gallerists, curators, and collectors in Asia. Hello, I'm your podcast host, Oscar Venhuis. In this episode, I traveled to Photon in Hong Kong, where I met Chan Kalun in her studio. We began our dialogue with a short quiz in which I attempted to see the difference between neon and LED. We continued the conversation covering a wide range of topics, from how she learned the craft of neon... Chanka Loon's upcoming Art Basel work and the history of the pawn shop Neon Sign. We also discussed the difference between American and Japanese Neon Techniques and Chanka Loon talked about her project The Neon Girl. The reason for this podcast is to raise the awareness of art in Asia. And if you wish to learn more about art in Asia, I highly recommend you to join one of the many in person or virtual art classes, lectures, workshops, gallery visits, or art city trips organized by Christie's Education in Hong Kong. To claim your 15% discount, follow the details in this podcast description. Welcome, Chan Loon. Thank you for inviting me to your studio today. And how are you?
1: Woohoo! Welcome to Fotan!
0: Photon is an area I come to quite frequently, but always on the other side of the river. But of course, that really depends on which side you are. So I'm really excited to explore this side of Photon as well.
1: Welcome to the neon side of (laughs) Photon.
0: One of the reasons why I visit people in their own environment or studio is to get a better understanding of how they work, live and think. How would you describe your studio that we're in?
1: Um, I have just recently uh, rearranged my studio as well, but as you come in on the left, you can see a wall of what a a lot of people would describe as neon junkyard (laughs) on the left side, So, which includes some of the neon I rescued, restored from the street, and also some of them are my own personal work. And then um, looking to the right side, you'll see a very beautiful, biophilic neon artwork that I did back in 2018. And right in the middle of it, there is my neon working desk.
0: When I look around, I see a lot of boxes, materials, neon lights, toys, Star Wars characters, many cameras as well. (laughs) It's a really pretty eclectic collection that you have here.
1: Yeah, so a little history about this studio is that it used to be the storage unit of my parents. And my dad is a big fan of Star Wars and Legos. And um, he works in post-production. So you can see a lot of things that are film-related.
0: So let's do this quiz that we spoke about off-air with... I hopefully will determine whether I can recognize the difference between neon or LED light. I'm looking at an image, that's the quiz, on your tablet, and I will need to guess if it is glass neon or LED. Let's try this.
1: I love to play this little game called um, real neon glass versus fake LED neon and ask people to guess and they have to tell me Why do they think it's a real neon or fake LEDs? And some of them are quite tricky. So we can start with this first image.
0: I'm looking at an image, what seems to be a large Pac-Man in different colors. And to be honest, my very first instinct is that this is LED and not neon. So my answer is that this is LED.
1: Ooh, why is that? What kind of feeling does it give you that it is not real neon? Is it the color or?
0: Yes, I think it's the colors, the brightness and the luminosity of it. I'll try to articulate why I think this is not glass, but LED lights instead. The tubes are all the same color, but the backlight has different shades. Yeah. The color around the tubes are bright, but for some reason... The transition between the colors appear very harsh and sharp. I always imagine that light from neon or from glass is softer and the transitions are more gentle than LED. But to be honest, it's really a guess. The shape at first glance can both be made in glass and LED. So I don't see a lot in there that clearly shows it is glass or not. So purely based on the diffusion of the light, I would guess this is not real neon.
1: Yeah, like this is a fake LED neon. Um, you did point out um, some uh, interesting facts about like between LED neon and glass um, neon. Is that like uh, first, the LED neon, they're actually made of RGB chips, right? And with a plastic wrapping laid on top of it so like actually their lights are very directional whereas if it's a glass neon tube it will be made up of a a glass tube with gas inside so it's 360 degrees so like the, the luminosity of the or ambience of the light will be quite different and then you also talk about the shape and actually when we are doing neon bending we use a single tube or we weld different tubes to create even a circle and also on the both end of the neon tube we'll put something called electrodes so that it actually electrify the atoms inside the gas to make it light up so in that case actually you can't have a complete circle like what we see in the pac-man here in the eyes like you know the circle part if it's glass neon it will have a gap in between
0: that makes a lot of sense. For me, I base it purely on the distribution of color and I guess a bit of luck to be honest as well.
1: And what about this? It is um, a word written, you are here inside a birdcage.
0: So again, this is a guess, but I would say this is glass. For some reason, the light diffusion of this light appears to be gentler than a previous image is less bright. The transition between the light and darker tones appear to be smoother than the previous image.
1: That is interesting because yes, it is real neon. And yeah, the ambience between the in between that it gives out is actually very soft like you were talking about. like when we compare usually the brightness of LED and glass neon, LEDs are always super sharp. You will. And whereas, like, when you're looking at glass neon, they're quite ambient. It's uh, A lot of people describe it as candlelight kind of brightness. And then you can look at it for a long time and you, it still won't, wouldn't hurt your eye. And it's quite pleasant to look at. One well, of the reasons I usually put this up is, like I mentioned in the beginning, like this is um, neon that is displayed inside a birdcage. And a lot of people would assume glass neon to only be displayed or even wrapped up in a metal box or like a acrylic backboard, but they wouldn't assume that it can use different material to actually support it. So I was trying to demonstrate the kind of multimedia element that neon can also have.
0: So have I passed the neon test?
1: Yes! Let me give you a tricky one.
0: I'll try to describe what I'm looking at right now. So I'm um, looking at a bluish colored tube that is twisted in different directions in the center it is brighter kind of really bright pinkish so it goes from bright inside towards a blue color on the outside but what makes this tube interesting is that at the bottom there is a different shape it reminds me of sugar crystals so the tube is very smooth and as you go to the bottom of that shape you can see these crystal forms appearing this could be plastic or could be glass if i disregard the crystal forms on the tube at the bottom and focus on the light of the tube i would say this is likely to be glass neon
1: yes that's correct so like the the mess that you describe below is actually a chemical reaction that caused some crystallizations at the exterior of the neon tube itself so actually you can change a little bit of the physical texture of the neon tube so this is also what I'm trying to demonstrate like yeah that's actually you can work around with neon like do some experiments with it and have it's and have some like, unexpected result as well.
0: And how do you call this crystallization process and how do you make this?
1: Um, you put it in a mixture of borax acid and then you dip it in. And then I tried it before, I think I put it inside the, um, the mixture for maybe three hours and then it will kind of have this re- effect already. And it's a, this one is actually a work by Jess Chrishell, um, US female neon artist. And um, I really love a lot of her work. She does a lot of experiments with neon as well, and this is one of them. And I really like the result she did. And it wows people. This one is actually made by my Dutch neon teacher, Remy, okay. which I already gave the clue already. So... Um, Oscar is actually looking at a neon installation with a lot of bubbles in it that is also very 3D and sculptural. It is actually um, using a glass blowing technique that you can see there are different bubbles in throughout the structure. And there are blue neon gas used in it, which is argon gas.
0: Oh, I didn't really notice the bubble straight away. I was just looking at the neon light and the sculptural shape of the neon light object that appears to be floating mid-air in a bar or in a restaurant space.
1: Yeah, uh, I forgot the name of the restaurant, but we saw this at the the Dutch Design Week. Yeah, um, a year ago. And I was very impressed by it. I didn't even know it was... um, created by my dutch teacher and then i showed him that and he was like oh yeah i created this for an artist oh he created this a
0: yeah. fellow artists that's really cool yeah
1: so a lot of neon artists or benders a lot of times they also create or they produce the neon for artists who don't have the skills to do neon making themselves that is also very common <laughs>
0: How did you end up in the netherlands
1: so i then maybe i should talk about my whole journey about <laughs> neon making <laughs> yeah so back in 2018 i organized and curated a group neon art exhibition called my light my hood in hong kong at a formal car park called uh, kong art space And I was very lucky enough to actually had a friend introduce me to one of the most experienced Neon Master in Hong Kong back then and collaborated with him. So throughout the whole process, I was liaising with between the designers, the artists and also Master, the Neon Master on how to execute all the pieces. So that I got a sense of how the technicality of it and how to combine creativity and technical techniques at the same time. And then I also conducted some workshops for the artists to learn a little bit about the neon making, including myself. So I thought oh, I had a glimpse of how neon making is, is quite hard. It's so complicated. It's like a craft about art and science and sport itself. And then after that, I had the um, opportunity to actually work on a piece um, in Wonderfruit in Thailand with my friends called Hai Jai. And everyone in the neon community in Hong Kong rejected to teach me how to do it, even though I had some sort of experience in design and kind of even know was the techniques that used. and But of course, I'm not fluent in it. So I found um, a glass sculpture glass sculpture artist in Shakib May and asked him to teach me. And basically what he did was uh, watch YouTube and then teach me for an hour. And then so I practiced for a whole week and that's how the piece was being done. And after that, I was really fascinated by this craft and I started looking online into like different neon artists around the world what are they doing and I was fascinated by some of their pieces as well so I went back to uh, the neon community in Hong Kong asked people to teach me again on how to achieve those effects or result and I got rejected again and also one of the reasons also they were some of them also told me that they don't know how to achieve those effects and then I was very frustrated, and it happens to me that my boyfriend and I were planning to move to, to Sato in Amsterdam at the time, and then one of the birthday presents for him was like a, to take a neon class for me, like a short class as a present. And then we were lucky enough to find Remy in Alkma. And once he saw the photos, the result that I want to achieve, he took me in and he's like, oh, I know how to make it, I can teach you. And I was just very happy. And the experience was totally different for me, like to be accepted or welcomed in Netherlands compared with my hometown where I got a lot of rejections. There are two
0: things I want to discuss further that you just mentioned. You said that neon bending is a kind of sport. Why is that?
1: I think it's like a sport, like um, I always, especially after watching Olympics, I can compare it with so many sports in it. First, you need very steady hands. So it's kind of like archery like and then you have to where you have to shoot because like when you are doing neon making you your hand have to be very precise in the way that you turn the tubes or in the way that you're trying to bend it and then secondly you have to have a a very strong core because you have to keep moving actually uh, maybe from left to right or maybe from one table to the burner or back to the table And then the other thing is you also have to have flexibility in this sense. So it is actually a craft where you have to constantly move while being stable. So for me, it is kind of like a lot of different uh, sport combined in one. I would love to compare it, a combination of archery, gymnastic, and wait, there's one more. Let me think. And chess although it's not Olympic sport, but that's how I feel about it when I do it. So what you are describing
0: is that neon bending is a very physical craft. Is that a fair description of how tough working with glass is?
1: Yes, it is very physical demanding, and um, it is also very hot whenever you're doing neon bending. Um, But at the same time, I think... um, once you're in it, once you're in the zone, I personally enjoy it so much that I would almost forget about it. All I would care about is, did I do it right? Oh my God, like it's molten now, I have to do it correctly. Another thing is because you always have to have such a clear mind, you have to be so focused that um, it actually uses up a lot of my energy Whenever I do neon making, also because I'm a beginner, so I'm not as experienced, I need to do extra markings that most of the neon artists I work with, they just don't like, or they would look down on me when I do that, but I'm like, hey, I'm a beginner, so... I need um, these little cues to remind myself.
0: The other thing you mentioned, and i like to go deeper into that as well, is that you were looking for neon artists and craftspeople in Hong Kong to teach you how to do this. And you said that you were rejected at the time when you were reaching out to them. Why was this happening? And what more can you say about why the initial reluctance?
1: Um, So in the beginning, I really didn't understand it. But now through my own project, I am actually doing a project called The Neon Girl where I learn neon making skills um, around the world from six different neon masters, artists, vendors from six different countries. And then that was the only time when I get to have one neon master to teach me. And through that experience, I, through the conversations we had or even the actual learning experience i realized that there are a lot of reasons to that and those are my own theories so first is that it's like in the asian culture where one is not one wouldn't just pass on their skills or trade to strangers they will only pass it on to their own descendant to avoid market competition and with this like mindset Actually, even when the sifu, I mean the neon masters or benders in Hong Kong back in the 50s or 60s when they are trying to learn the skill, their own sifu, like their masters or teachers, they wouldn't be teaching them as well. How they learned was basically just by observing. There were no guidelines, no textbook telling them uh, what are the proper way or the ABC of neon making. So I guess when it comes to for them to pass the skills to younger generations or to the others, they just didn't know how to start as well. So I think this is my personal experience and how I felt about it. When I compare my neon learning skill, uh, classes in Hong Kong and compared to other countries.
0: That seemed to make a lot of sense. Uh, the reason why I found this initial reluctance surprising because I remember as a child growing up in Europe that the future was for some reason always in Asia, especially here in Hong Kong. Movies like Blade Runner and the movies from the film director Wong Kar Wai were really aspirational. How they used the neon light was absolutely mind blowing. Hong Kong was and still is known for its neon advertising love it or hate it, the richness of neon is very distinct to Hong Kong. So probably in my own ignorance, I always thought there would be a school or university and many courses available for this here in
1: Hong Kong. So like, let's say in US, they have a lot of neon schools. Or even there are schools that have a discipline or departments that teach neon. So they actually have a lot of young generation of neon artists there. And then even from my experience to learn in Taiwan recently, the Sifu has a set of guidelines, like there are steps to steps from level one to level 20 for you to learn uh, different bends. So there is kind of a guideline and a textbook in a sense. And even what I discovered is there's actually a lot of technical books about neon, but they're mostly in English. So I guess, like, if you think about the environment back in 50s and 60s, it would be very difficult for the sifu to get these assets of knowledge. They could only get it from their own teachers, to be honest. And it really depends on the teachers if they want to spread the skills or pass on the skills.
0: Do you feel that attitudes in Hong Kong are changing because a new government policy that was introduced promotes removal of large outdoor signs to protect the public from falling objects on the street? Has this policy increased the interest for NEON and maybe also the openness to share knowledge of the Hong Kong grass people?
1: Mm, I personally don't. I think uh, the community is still remaining in the same status quo. And uh, for a lot of their own reason, because like sometimes I feel like the neon community is like a secret society. Here. And a lot of times I don't understand the code. And of course, they won't talk to me about the code as well. I have to be yelled at or scolded at. And that's when I know, oh, they don't like this and they they like something, they don't like something. It was actually quite hard to get into it. But at the same time, my standpoint is also that I'm actually doing neon art and experimental neon art as well, which is a totally different uh, spectrum because they are mostly doing commercial neon and I am not. So I'm trying to find my way to live around it, but not so that I can find my own space in this community as well.
0: You bring up an interesting point of a possible reason why the sharing of knowledge is slower in Hong Kong. Obviously, you don't want to share your experience of neon signage making and lettering of your local competitors. However, you work in a slightly different domain than a street neon signs. I see why local masters or shifus are a little bit apprehensive and careful giving away their craft for free, without getting anything back for it.
1: Yeah, it is a very contradicting um, relationship as well. Um, For now, I keep a commercial relationship with the seafoods here. So like there's a process where we call bombarding, where I will uh, pass my work to them and for them to inject the gas in and do the bombarding process. So like in that way, I'm keeping a commercial relationship with them so that to, to seek a balance between our dynamic as well the other thing is maybe just let me talk about one of the reasons I'm setting up my my own studio now is also because I know that I need to practice more to be better but then at the same time the neon communities also knows about it like they also know that oh yeah she needs to practice more to become better but then at the same time when I ask uh, if anyone can rent the studio to me I got rejection or I've been to a studio where there's kind of plagiarism in it that makes me feel unsafe when I work there so this is also why I'm setting up my own studio and planning to make it a creative and safe space for women who are interested in neon in the future (laughs)
0: Before we continue, I have a small favor to ask. This podcast, The Last Supper, is offered to you at zero cost. And if you wish to support this podcast, please give it a like, a star rating, leave a comment and make sure you share this podcast with your friends and anyone you think will benefit from listening to this podcast about art in Asia. Many thanks and let's continue. When I was looking at your work, you appeared to make a very deliberate and explicit statement on your website. On your website, you say, hey, I'm Chan Kalun, a Hong Kong female and experimental neon artist in the male-dominated neon industry. So I'm curious about your motivation to state this on your website.
1: Yes, because like um, a lot of people, like we always talk about like how to preserve the dying craft, right? Like we all understand that um, it's fading and, It is very sad to see a lot of the signs that are ticking down every day, bit by bit, and it becomes kind of like a collective memory for those who live to see them, rather than something that we could really enjoy now. So it is definitely about the government regulations and also how hard it is to get a license to even install a neon sign now. So it is as much as I think there is um, the importance in preserving the neon signs, which I think we should also do it, it which is also why I have some neon signs like uh, rescued and restored in my own studio. And there are so many amazing organizations in Hong Kong doing that as well, like Tetra Neon and Street Sign Hong Kong. At the same time, my skills is not there in doing preservation. My skills is more in creative and technology. So my way of preserving neon is actually trying to explore neon as another medium so that it could live in a new way. So my approach is turning it into experimental neon art because I always believe in redefining and repurposing medium or even concepts. So... By doing that, I hope to demonstrate another side of neon to not only the audience in Hong Kong or even audience to the world about its potential and maybe in return it could live in a different form. So that's why uh, it is very important for me to do experimental neon art.
0: I'm looking behind me and the first object I notice is the sign of a typical Hong Kong money loan shop or pawn shop. It's such a distinct neon sign in Hong Kong and I always wanted to have one and I really envy you that you've been able to rescue a room-sized version. Yeah. So what's the story behind this amazing piece of neon heritage of Hong Kong?
1: I got it from Jordan. I was actually very lucky because a lot of people wanted a pawn shop sign mm-hmm. and I was just walking in Jordan with my boyfriend one day. And I was like, oh my God, this is such a cute pawn shop sign. And then we realized that uh, the shop was gone. And so what happened was I just uh, ran into the building, tried to figure out the building committee or whatever that is called, failed. and But then I saw a notice in the building um, with the properties management's number So I just ran them right away. I'm like, you know, like the government is going to ask you to take it down at some point. And if you give it to someone, if you just outsource this to anyone, they're just going to smash it. But like, because I'm a neon artist, I know the people who can actually dismantle them in very good condition, in the right way, kind of, so that we can really preserve the sign rather than getting it smashed. And then they didn't, reply me and then I ran into their office <laughs> and just asked for the person <laughs> who is responsible for that building. And then and then they're just like, okay, yeah, like uh, the 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 building committees are happy with you taking it down and of course because I pay for it as well. <laughs> but I think it's a win win situation. We got a, actually after we dismantle it, the sign was in 95% good condition. There was only two neons that were broken. So I think it is a very good rescue project, little project that I did. And I still haven't figured out how to, where to put it, but just laying it on my trolley at the moment.
0: (laughs) You do an incredible job to preserve these disappearing neon signs, which brings me to circular design or recycling. I know you are really passionate about making your work as sustainable as possible. What can you say about your interest in sustainability?
1: Because I realize there's a lot of misinformation about NEON and mostly it's about its sustainability and energy consumption. And um, a lot of these informations are usually distributed in uh, LED companies or buy LED companies for their marketing campaign, which mislead a lot of people. So one thing I can even ask you is like, um, do you know how much uh, amperage is your laptop using every hour? Do you want to make a guess?
0: Oh my, that question is way harder than a neon test you gave me at the start. I would absolutely have no <laughs> clue.
1: Okay, um on average, a generally a laptop would use two amperage of power per hour, and in neon we actually use something called a transformer, and usually it uses up less than zero point two amperage for a neon sign. So if you compare it to that, actually neon doesn't eat up that much energy. And you have never heard any shop owners, restaurant owners complaining their electricity bill as a start, right? Because of their sign. And that they have to rob a bank or something. So first, like, uh, the myth about Neon being a very energy-consumed medium might have some misleading ideas that is spread amongst the audience in general and the other thing is neon is actually made with glass and for glass you can always recycle it and that is also what i did with one of the work in wonderful that i mentioned earlier that we actually uh actually reorganize the shape and even the structure of unused signs that we found in hong kong and to give them a new shape with the whole installation in Thailand. And even for uh, my upcoming piece for Art Basel, for La Paris, um, we also use a lot of broken glass that it's produced from the neon making process and even the production waste from the product to create some exciting pieces as well. And to be honest, glass is quite durable. And that's why in Europe you can see neon signs that can last 20 to 30 years. When I was in Paris, like learning uh, neon making, I saw all these signs on the street and I thought like, oh, the neon makers here must have uh, a lot of cells. But then when I talked to them, they're like, no, look, they all have some dust on (laughs) it. Look carefully. they are old signs so it just proves that they are so durable especially with the borosilicate glass that they use in france that allow a neon to last that long but if you think of a uh, led signs that we're using now or even a plastic sign that we use now also because when the cost is so cheap a lot of times when it's damaged you can't like I mean, you can fix it, but usually the shop owner won't really fix it because of the low cost as well. A lot of times, and they will just uh, end up in um, landfill. And also, for LED, usually I think the maximum lifespan of it is one to two years as well, depending on how often do you use them. So, in terms of durability, I think Neon already has like at least 10 times. Uh, lifetime span than LED neon.
0: That's a really fascinating perspective. However, it seems that most companies in Hong Kong don't last that long anymore.
1: Yes, there's a symbolic meaning in it as well, right? That you want a very long-lasting sign that represents your business and your reputation. And that's also why people turned to neon before.
0: Do you feel that local businesses in Hong Kong are turning away from glass neon signage?
1: I don't think so. Actually, I still have a lot of inquiries every now and then uh, for a commercial neon sign. Maybe they're not asking for a exterior outdoor commercial sign, but a lot of them actually love an uh, interior piece. It might be a logo or um, an interior neon art. I don't know, maybe it's also because I do neon art. So like um, I would have requests for that as well. Let's talk
0: about your art projects as well. You have clients in Hong Kong, Europe and beyond. How do you work with clients when they ask you to make a neon work for them?
1: Yeah, usually they have a concept in mind or something that they want. Maybe it could be a graphic or maybe it could be a message. And then a lot of times when I approach these project, I'm just thinking, what would I want to see personally? What would wow me personally? And I actually start from that. And I think it strongly came from my background. Actually, I did set design for station screen as a bachelor, and I always loved theatres. And musicals so I always like theatrical visuals or impact so this is how I would usually approach to a new brief or concept and then luckily a lot of times I align with my client very quickly and don't have to do a lot of adjustment and the other thing is uh, these days I would um, also apply a lot of uh, sustainability elements To the work as well so it could be biophilic or it could be maybe even the way we are using the tubes or the way that we are representing has a sustainability element in it
0: do you work mostly with private clients or what can you say about the scope of the projects that you are involved in
1: yes i have a lot of private clients that are actually asked me to do neon art for their homes actually And then some of them, yeah, and I have some commercial clients to have an art piece in their studio. Yeah, a lot of times they're indoor. And so actually it is quite a challenge for my upcoming piece because it is going to be 10 meters by 5 meters outdoor 3D sculptural neon installation at Art Basel.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow, that sounds really amazing. (laughs) What is the progress of that? Have you almost finished it?
1: It's not. I haven't started. (laughs) I mean, I haven't started the production part, but I have been working on the preparation for it. Because as much as a lot of people think, this is also what I love to educate people, is that neon making is not just about neon bending. There is so much work involved in the planning and also in the installation and even logistics that actually would affect how the design look let's say if i were to create something very crazy like a 3d like u shape like this like i'm drawing in front of you now after i produce it i have to think about oh how should i even deliver it to the site or how should i install it if it's 3d is this a 3d shape like this it might break easily when during the delivery so i have to plan how can i bend it or how should i design it so that it will lay flat uh, when i'm producing it and then install it in a way so that it's sculptural and 3d so there's a lot of planning in that and uh, that will affect the actually design and the technical design of the piece itself
0: that's a really large new work Did you just say 10 meters?
1: Uh, Yes, it's 10 meters by five meters. And it is a piece about sustainability and bringing Swiss landscape to Hong Kong.
0: Absolutely fascinating. When you work at this scale, how do you develop this? Do you begin with sketches or models or do you plan first? How do you tackle something at this size?
1: Um, So usually how I start is yes with a sketch, So I draw on my Procreate, like uh, however I feel like. And then after that, I usually use a 3D model program called Cinema 4D to try to replicate how it will look in the actual environment. And then from that, I will then do the technical drawing on Illustrator to actually um, just like what you see over there like uh, on what's the width and length of each tube, how long are they, how am I going to bend them when they are printed flat on the paper. And then after that, I started uh, neon bending. While I'm doing all these things, I also have to, okay, I have to get a wooden box or paper box to store these neon. At the same time, also like uh, looking for different foams or wrappings to keep them safe at the same time.
0: What was quite interesting, when you were explaining the making process, I understand how physical this is. Just looking at the movements, which people can't see on this podcast, but it was almost like a dance performance.
1: Yes, because I was moving a lot just now as well as I speak. (laughs) Yeah, because I was trying to say like, when I'm making the 3D model, where you can have different perspective of how it looks, and then that's also a very important part because like, sometimes after I make something, I, if I don't turn it around, I can't see if it's technically visible or not. And when I'm making the 3D model, I also have to think of how to do the installation at the same time. So there's a lot of parameters at the same time that I have to consider and not just the look of it. And then of course there's a budget to it as well because like, oh, the larger it is, like, oh, I need extra poles here, extra poles there. Or how can I eliminate them so that it fits within the budget? And yeah, there's a lot of calculation involved.
0: This project that you're working on for the upcoming Art Basel in Hong Kong, where do you find your sources of inspiration? I know that art making isn't a linear process and you mentioned you began with sketches. What can you say what influences and motivates you for this work?
1: Um, So the piece for Art Basel is commissioned by La Prairie. And uh, we were pretty much aligned in the beginning that we wanted to do something uh, related to the Swiss nature. And so, like, actually I thought a lot about, like, the mountains, the lake, um, the snow, and... At the same time, I'm also thinking, oh, what are we lacking? And what is the element that can draw everyone, that can connect everyone without too much explanation as well? Because like sometimes we might also, when we're trying to spread a message, if it's too complicated, the general public might find it quite hard to understand or digest. It was some journey to try to find that balance. And at the end, I was thinking about air, which is also a very pure form of survival elements that we all need. When we talk about it, everyone knows about it. And if you think about that, Hong Kong is always being considered as air polluted compared with Switzerland, where with a natural and pristine environment that is so pure with the air. So trying to find this connection and bring it to the work. And one thing I always like to work with is also to have puns in my work as well. (laughs) If you look at some of the titles of my work, I wouldn't say they're very well titled, but I just like to play with words. So I also found mm, this word, just light you know when we talk about neon it's about the light source itself and how we can compare it with air in the phrase like light as air so it is both about the weight of air and also the light itself as a light source that could represent air and that's how the whole piece is based on
0: you just made a reference to a English wordplay do you do this in Chinese as well?
1: Yes, I did. So one of the early piece I did is called "Shu." <laughs> it's actually the sound trying to imitate the sound of a tree in Chinese as well. And that piece is about how nature this can easily destroy our neighborhood, which is referenced from uh, the typhoon Mankut back in. 2018 in Hong Kong and inspired me to do that work and that piece of work is actually an interactive installation when you join our hands together we can rebuild the community which is actually also one of the elements I'm putting in into um, this upcoming piece for Art Basel.
0: Oh I'm really curious now what your new work will look like. (laughs) When did you start with this project for Art Basel?
1: Actually, we started in uh, May, I think. Or even before that. So it has been more definitely more than nine months, I think. Yeah, from the initial brief to how the whole concept took place, it took us a lot of time.
0: Let's move on and look at one of the many projects that you've worked on. So, I'll let you choose the work that you want to highlight next.
1: Um, another piece I really like um, is Hijai from Wonderfruit. It also has a sustainability element in it about global air quality. So, it is a piece that I actually worked with a collective of artist friends, and I was doing the neon part. And we all have different roles, like we have architects, we have curators, we have a multimedia designer. And that's how the whole piece come into place. And the idea of it is that air is so important to us and that um, we would like to use the piece to show the air quality index of different countries around the world in real time every day at the festival. To remind them of, uh, to remind the festival goers of what's going on around the world. And what I love about this piece is, apart from the uh, multimedia element of it, is how much we are trying to give uh, medium second or even third life. So the neon we used, um, like I mentioned before, part of it were coming from. unwanted neon signs that we found on the street of hong kong and how we try to combine new neon to give it a new shape and after the installation actually you can see some of them in my studio now so they still have different purposes we even like we can still able to rent it out for display for other people who are interested to it so it never really dies (laughs) And then even for other part of the installation, like the bamboo structure, after the dismantle, we actually donated it to a local international school as part of their community uh, center. So, um, and also uh, in the installation, we have a massive uh, mat for people to lay on the floor. And the mats were actually beach mats we found in Pattaya beach. And then um, their second life would be for the festival goers to lie down on the floor. And then actually after the festival, we created some New Year's card and Christmas card with those beach masks and send it to our family and friends and partners as well. So it is a project that I like a lot. It's also like outdoor neon installation that is using a lot of different sustainable materials like bamboo. And also when we design create, we already have to think about the afterlife of our installation. And so that it tries to eliminate the waste that we create as artists and designers. And I think it's quite meaningful and that's why I really like it. And uh, for my upcoming piece for Art Basel, I'm also respecting this practice of having a circular element for the installation as well.
0: You've talked about sustainability and emphasised this quite often, and I found it really fascinating that this is so central to your work, because in Hong Kong this isn't often thought about. Mm,
1: I think it is very important, and of course I'm also not perfect, but I think once you're conscious about it, when you're creating, you realize there's a lot you can do. And I think when we are artists or creators or even designers, a lot of times when we create, we tend to forget like the afterlife of it. And I actually think it is as important as when we create something. And that's why I try to keep these things in mind to have a kind of a circular approach to my projects so that I feel less guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: another motivation for doing it and I appreciate it that you highlight this because we all need to be more conscious about how we produce and consume things. Do you know if companies that removed the neon signs, are these signs replaced?
1: I think I did see neon signs being replaced and then I I cannot recall an exact sign in my mind now, but I'm pretty sure that I saw them and then I'm just thinking, oh, it's just a big pile of plastic sign now that is uh, losing some kind of charm, but maybe it will have some charm in the future, I don't know. Maybe this is just a process.
0: I can imagine that while most people are glued to the mobile phone, you look up and look at the outdoor neon signs up in the air.
1: Yeah, I actually don't look at my phone a lot. Like, uh, yeah, I do like to look around. And one of the reason is, oh, oh my God, one of the little reason is also because I'm a big fan of um, invaders. <laughs> and so I just constantly look around and like see if there's any invaders I spot and then I don't know if you know. Okay, this is such a side story. Like, and then there's an app where you can flash it and score points. What? There's an app for this? Called Flash Invaders. (laughs) And so, yeah, that's also one of the reasons I keep looking, like, looking around on the street. But yeah, in general, yeah, I just like to look at architectures. And um, a lot of times, my boyfriend and I, we love to do kind of like a window flat hunting. When you look at beautiful flats uh, on the street, we'll just try to imagine what the people doing there was for. Oh, it's such a lovely flat. It would be nice if we have it and discover things.
0: What are the favorite locations in Hong Kong for neon watchers or neon nerds?
1: I actually would love to. There are some old movies and pictures that I saw, which I personally do didn't experience is I think it's on Nathan Road where there's a lot of neon sign and then when they still have the open double-decker bus where you can almost touch them I think that is very fascinating so if I can go back in time I would love to sit on that and touch the neon sign
0: (laughs) I know this is an illegal question and please don't do this but if you could steal a neon piece What's the one piece you would love to have?
1: Before I, got the, before I rescued the pawn shop sign, I would say a pawn shop sign because it brings so much uh, symbols of our visual culture, I think. Because even if you look at all the other neon signs around the world, you wouldn't see the shape anywhere, basically. It is so unique to us. So before rescuing that, I would probably say a pawn shop sign. But now let me think maybe for the ones that are still standing now i would want this leaf shaped neon sign from i think it's sun cha jong it's like a tea shop in wan chai where you can see when you're taking the tram that would be one that i would like to steal one of the reason is because it has a special shape like a leaf that represent the tea leaves of the shop and i find that quite unique
0: i like to go back to the uh, loan shop or pawn shop sign. Do you know the story of this?
1: I do not know the history, but I know the symbolic meaning of it. So on the pawn shop sign, usually you have the circle. So correct me if I were wrong. Like I remember the circle actually represent a coin. And then uh, on top of it, the shape is actually a bat. Because when you pronounce bat in a uh, Chinese like it's like a fortune prosperity coming to you with a coin so it represents money as well so in a sense it's a very fortune symbol for in the Chinese culture that's why it is also good for a pawn shop sign because they're trying to have more (laughs) money
0: it's a very distinct and unique neon sign of Hong Kong and I don't think it's anywhere else
1: yeah, I do not see it anywhere. I don't even recall seeing it in mainland China or or even in Macau. Most of them, I think, are rectangular form, not as vibrant as this bat holding a coin in the mouth, like how we see in Hong Kong here. So that's why I think it's a very unique visual symbol for us. If you think about Hong Kong, if you look at a lot of the... Um, designs that represent Hong Kong, we, you always see this shape somewhere. Yeah.
0: It's indeed a very recognizable landmark of the Hong Kong city landscape. It's not only the shape and the Chinese characters, but also the colors that are really significant. The green with the deep red are a typical Hong Kong color combination.
1: Yes, that's correct. As like, uh, Of course, red is because like... We love red <laughs> green is also because of the pun in the word it's called luk. yeah it's also related to fortune or know something good I don't know how to uh, translate that in English unfortunately um, but yeah so a lot of the even the choice of colour are actually related to how much fortune does one wanna receive
0: do you Happen to know if the green is related to or associated with the Chinese jade? Yeah, uh,
1: uh, maybe, maybe it could possibly be. It is like when you look at um Chinese painting, there's a lot of deer because deer is also pronounced as l- log, <laughs> so log and log and log, the green color, they're all very similar. That's why they are bringing um, a good meaning to the house or to the shop in general, yeah.
0: Now, let's talk about another initiative that you are involved in. Not only are you busy making neon pieces, you also share your knowledge through these workshops. What more can you say about this?
1: Yeah, so... Um, I host uh, some workshops, which is LED Neon workshop, before I actually have my own space. Because for me, it is a um, safe way to teach the general public, especially kids. Um, and also back then, because I don't have my own studio, so it's not like I can just teach neon making to anyone, just like, oh, bring my burner. So uh, usually for my workshops, I would teach about Basically, how are we actually designing a traditional glass neon and turn them into an easier way for people to digest and even create like easily with LED neon with the bending techniques? So it is also what differentiate from the other neon workshops because in my workshop you have to bend it like how you're bending glass and so when you're designing it you have to think about where to do the bends where to do the drop how to basically really like how when you're doing traditional neon and in april i hope or even in march if i have time i will open my neon space for like females or female identifying bodies who are interested in neon making and it would be a Experimental space for everyone. So, I will teach them some basic skills and then I will just leave them go on and explore glass themselves. And so, I think it is as important because why do I think it's important for us to have a space like this is so that we can keep practicing it. And I think through sharing, you can always get advice from someone or you can always be inspired by one another. And I also think it is very important. That you would find the space safe so that you will share this knowledge. Because once we stop sharing or passing knowledge, this will become another dying craft again. So I think it is uh, from my personal experience, it is very important for me to set up a space like this. and for any women that wants to feel supportive in this industry, even if they want to just try, as a hobby let's also
0: talk about your project The Neon Girl what is this?
1: yes so I'm still working on my personal project The Neon Girl and uh, after Abbaso I'll be going to Japan uh, to learn neon making skills with uh, masters and vendors there and that will be my last stop for this project for now because uh, I will have completed three different experiences in the west and three in the east as well So for me to compare, to make comparisons, and um, interestingly, also Japan, as far as I know, is the only Asian country that has both American and European neon making skills. So it is quite fascinating for me to learn about it and to actually to see how it brew in different parts of Japan and how was the approach to it as well.
0: And what are the differences between the American and Japanese neon making practices?
1: Yeah, I didn't, I didn't try to get too technical in the beginning, but since you ask, So um, this is also what I realized neon is so fascinating. I learned so much about it and without setting it as an agenda in the beginning for this neon girl project. So the neon signs we see in Hong Kong is uh, mostly using the American neon bending skills. If we talk about neon making, how do we get the color? Do you know?
0: (laughs) I'm probably a bit of a cheat because I did research this beforehand and I had no clue that you were going to ask this. But please explain what the difference is.
1: The traditional way of making neon, which a lot of European neon benders still use, is you have a transparent glass tube. And after you bend the shape, you will then... Basically fill it in with a layer of phosphor powder that gives it certain color. And then when you mix it with the gas, maybe like neon, like a red gas or argon, blue gas, which are two very common gas you use in neon making, it will give a cocktail of color that it emits. So this process is um, longer and more difficult because if you imagine when you have very tiny bends that is like a circular shape or a U-shape or square shape in the middle of the tube, it is actually quite hard for the phosphor powder to get through it evenly. So actually it would take a lot of time to do it. I personally tried this technique in Agma with Remy once even just to do a curved shape, it took us an hour because of the whole process of how to fill in the layer of glue that to uh, allow the phosphor to stick on it and how to make sure it's evenly distributed. That was a lot of work. And then you also have to dry the tube. Well, we wish I won't get into the details, but then like for American bending, a lot of times we are using pre-coated tubes, which means the tubes are already have the phosphor powder stuck on it already. So you just bend it. So when you're actually producing work commercially, it is very fast and efficient. And but the cons of this is uh, sometimes if you burn a certain part too much, it might lose the phosphorus powder. And so, like, there's actually pros and cons in both um, different ways of neon making. And the other thing that is different from the European and the American way is also the glass they use. In Europe, like, especially in France, they use borosilicate glass, which is much thicker than they use for scientific glass as well. So even the electrode they use are so different in this sense. And in that sense, that's why it is very interesting for me. Like, I'm just fascinated to go to Japan to see how an Asian country can transform these two different techniques in their own way. And at the same time, I'm also being told that Japanese are using the thinnest glass on Earth so far, which I have to see it myself to see if it's a myth or if it's true or how does it work. So I'm actually very excited to visit Japan after a Basel to see how it goes.
0: In the light of what we discussed earlier about the reluctance some people have in the neon industry, I'm curious if you're going to attend a workshop or are you planning just a casual gathering to share your neon experience?
1: I haven't uh, contacted a guy yet, but I have their contacts. And it is from someone who had experience with them before. So I'm quite confident that I should be able to learn from them. And through the project, actually, I've been quite lucky because every time when I approach the neon masters or artists or benders, they're usually very welcome to share with me their skills. And in return, actually, I share the skills or the tools that I've seen in other studio with them as well, like an exchange of skills through me sometimes even. What
0: I find really intriguing is that the neon making at the art level appears to be a lot more collaborative than at the really commercial sign making one.
1: Yes, actually, that's what I was saying. It is, for me, it is a comparison between my, my experience in Hong Kong versus my experience to the world is usually more welcoming. And um, I would feel like uh, whenever i approach the neon teachers outside of hong kong they're always very helpful to tell me what i've done wrong what i might have approached better they're always giving me some tips and tricks and guidelines even after i have taken the class with them and i really appreciate that it made me feel like i get more supportive system out of hong kong which is quite sad but yeah this is my experience
0: let's delve into the final question of this podcast if you were to have your last supper who would you invite and why
1: the first one is for me she's an artist it would be Julie Taymor she's the puppet designer director of the Lion King musical and I was really moved by it when I first watched it as a kid because like we all know about the movie Lion King but to actually see it in real how she turned human into animals and how she turned the sun with fabrics or even how to demonstrate the cliff with a lot of buffaloes with puppets and human it I was really overwhelmed when I watched it. And that was also why I got into set design uh, as my bachelor in the beginning. And I would very much love to talk to her to see what uh, her inspirations are usually and see if we can collaborate. (laughs) Also because as a woman in musical industry, which is quite male-dominant as well, I give her a lot of respect on that, yeah.
0: And is there a second artist you were considering for your last opera as well?
1: It will be Invaders. (laughs) Yeah, because no one has, like he he has such a, a secret identity. If I have a dinner with him, he needs to eat, right? So I can just tip up the masses. Ah, so this is you, c'est toi.
0: Chang <laughs> Kalun, many thanks for inviting me over to your studio in Tan, and I look forward to seeing your work at the upcoming Art Basel in Hong Kong.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Last Supper with Neon artist Chang Kalun. I hope you enjoyed it and I offer this weekly podcast at zero cost, so please help me to raise the awareness of the amazing artistic talent we have here in Asia. You can do this by simply subscribing or following this podcast channel, give it a 5 star rating or leave a comment and don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues. I will post all the social media links and other references on my blog and in this podcast description as well. And before you go, The Last Supper podcast supports the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong.